Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and here in the midst of my building being under construction, I have an episode for you about ancient Akkadian state structure and the way that that is recorded in poetry, stila, inscriptions, and... uh, you know, in the in the cuneiform script, and specifically uh, having to do with the cuneiform script, which has so a really interesting multilingual history. Uh, you probably, you know, modern people probably know that cuneiform, sort of the earliest language that we know of it being used to write. And yeah, I think we know that original language that it was invented for is is Sumerian, right? We know that. However, this is another one of those interesting things. It has a decipherment history just like Egyptian does, right? Uh, slightly later, I think the Behistun inscription was, um, I mean, it's about the same time, right? And it's ongoing. It goes for a long time. And it's ongoing today. There's a lot that we still don't understand, right? Um, I will be talking today largely from a collection of English translations of Akkadian literature, uh, by Foster called Before the Muses from 2005. Really a treasure. It's a big fat book, but it's got all different genres of things and all kinds of interesting. Uh, everything from myths of gods and, and heroes and epic poems to sort of very dry stila inscriptions to very fascinating little amulets and incantations, prayers. Uh, you know, ex- exorcisms of certain forces and so on. Uh, we'll get into that uh, maybe a little bit today. But uh, the main first thing, there's a history of decipherment there, and it actually goes through Akkadian, which is a Semitic language. And we already could read Semitic languages, right? Because that would include right Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, and uh, actually, the first step, though, was the Behistun inscription, which is kind of like the Rosetta Stone. This is an interesting thing. You need to, in order to really decipher, uh, one of the th- ways that you can decipher anyway is that you have a, a bilingual text that is written in a language. One of the languages is the language that you know. So in the case of Egyptian, the big key was that Napoleon's soldiers found at the bottom of the Nile, uh, the Rosetta Stone, which had an inscription in Greek. It was a Ptolemaic period inscription in Greek. It has demotic uh, hieroglyphs and then more like uh, hieroglyph hieroglyphs. And because we know Greek, then we could start to pick out, oh, this is a name, you know, and people had, people had already maybe suspected that the cartouches, they had figured out they'd found like Cleopatra inside of, of cartouches and, and so on. But then now you have a bilingual text and you can actually begin to decipher. And from that little drop of catalyst, now you can work back and over hundreds of years, people have deciphered 
most of the Egyptian language, there still is all kinds of scholarship, though, being done and understanding of particular grammatical forms, which don't necessarily correspond to anything that we know, right? Uh, there's all kinds of interesting forms of the Egyptian verb. If you want to learn Egyptian, my recommended text would be the third edition of James Allen's Middle Egyptian. That's a good place to learn it, but just page through the table of contents of that and you'll see all different interesting verbal forms that you can go and learn about uh, if you're a real nerd like me. Uh, but so the Rosetta Stone, the, the equivalent would be the Behistun inscription. This, too, uh, this is discovered by a British Empire kind of chancer who is traipsing around uh, sniffing for oil, what else, in uh, Iran and, and other places like that, right? And uh, as, the, as they do. And he found this inscription that had uh, Greek, and at one of the things that it had was Persian, old Persian written in cuneiform. And because that was the original, it was a monumental script anyway, one of the scripts for Old Persian, right? There's the Avestan script, that's another thing. That derives from, like, the Aramaic alphabet, ultimately, right? Uh, Persian is used, is written with a couple different scripts, but one of them is a cuneiform kind of syllabary, right? It's a syllabary. Uh, so, like, you know, a Japanese is written with a syllabary, right? Like, that's what I... That would be my go-to example. So all the different syllables, right, have a different graph. Uh, and so now we could read, oh, we could read some cuneiform. And cuneiform writing was known in the past. You know, you have actually some Sufi masters in the uh, Islamic picaresque world who claim to be able to read cuneiform objects. I think that was in some of the... Uh, sort of books of charlatans that I was reading for the earlier episode on that topic. Uh, but nobody could really read them, right? At least as far as we know from texts that we have. Maybe somebody could read them and they never, they never told anybody. But And you, there's this whole interesting history of like false, uh, <laughs> false decipherments, uh, which on the Egyptian side would include people like Athanasius Kircher, the German Jesuit who ran the Jesuits museum, like their proto, their cabinet of curiosities. Uh, that was a, com it was in a spreading thing in the, in the age of exploration in Europe. A common thing was to have a cabinet of curiosities and this could include drugs and it could include scientific uh, instruments like prisms and so on. And, you know, people have dreams of creating a perpetual motion machine and so on. I was just talking to someone the other day. Uh, I, I used the perpetual motion machine as a, an example for, I think, some people's dreams of AI. Yeah, that was their original, you know, that was their original thing for Duolingo, was that they thought, that the original pitch for Duolingo was that if you, it can be totally, the AI can just watch people trying to learn a language, and thereby the AI will get better at teaching language and it also will learn all the languages uh but that you know it really is kind of like the per perpetual motion machine and today i mean you know it's they're charging money <laughs> they had to charge money you know they thought they could just make it free and, um and i think it, it is some darpa shell company isn't it maybe i'm wrong about that 
Um, but they certainly now have, you know, I dabble in all different languages. I have like, I have an account in almost every language they, that they offer. Uh, and the Russian one is now full of all kinds of statements about Ukrainians are people too, and we love Ukrainians and shit. So it's like, you can tell, um, somebody is at the wheel, somebody's at the controls and they're definitely, um, I apologize for the hoarseness of my voice. I'm realizing I have uh, hay fever, we say. Uh, yeah, and which is a funny thing, you know, coming to Japan originally, I was in the mountains and everyone would get it. And it's because they cut the most of the, the indigenous flora of Japan during the industrialization and replanted with with all this cypress and cedar, which is useful for logging, but it doesn't it doesn't create it doesn't make for a balanced ecosystem, and so people get nasty hay fever all the time, and that was a, a big reason why people would be wearing masks in the past, right? You know, when I lived in the mountains, a lot of people would be wearing a mask, and it's mostly just because they're they have a raging runny nose and also they're trying to limit the amount of pollen that actually gets in to their bodies because it's wrecking havoc and causing an allergic reaction right because there's this very unbalanced kind of unnatural forest that's been created and uh however i did not have this i or at least i never noticed it just as a young uh young guy running around not thinking about anything but now I get it. Is it because like I've lived in Japan long enough that my whatever system has, you know, I eat the food here and, you know, it could be that. I don't know. But your immune system probably, there are things that get sort of written into it at early stages in your life, right? Uh, some of this can have to do with uh, obesity in the United States per potentially, right? Although that's mainly due to a counterinsurgency policy strategy to make sure that everything under a certain price point is going to poison you with uh, pesticides and corn syrup. Corn syrup is engineered to cost less than nothing, but uh, getting a good robust dose of different kinds of things, especially cow dung. Uh, there's studies that you know even having like a, a pregnant woman live for some time of her pregnancy near cows, and then even if you give birth not near cows in another place. Uh, you'll give birth to healthier babies with uh, stronger immune systems, basically. Right. So our bodies are completely, particularly immunology is fascinating in this regard. All kinds of inputs are, are present. Um, I heard someone the other day told me that they theorized maybe if you're straight out in the country, you might have less effect because there are pollens, but there's also other things balancing them out a little bit more than in the city where you just have these pollens and, and people are, yeah. So anyway, immunology, language, these, these big systems, uh, and thinking about the way, and, and class struggle, right? Uh, it it's, can be really fun to think about these things as kind of Indra's net, right, from the Flower Garland Sutra, the way that uh, every point is connected to every other point in the web. And um, yeah, they all influence each other, mutual influence. So, but uh, we were deciphering, right? We're talking about the decipherment of cuneiform. Uh, and that's also why, you know, there's different sort of pseudepigrapha that come about. Um, right, cause I, and I was talking about Kirscher, 
right? I was talking about Kirscher and how he claimed to uh, know how to read the hieroglyphs, and he didn't. And he sort of helped to give birth to a, a genre called emblemology, emblem, emblematics, what is it called? Uh, where, you know, Renaissance Europeans were sort of trying to recover that kind of pure writing that, that, uh, that gets straight at Platonic ideas is, is really the idea, right? That, that pure thought could somehow be accessed uh, by uh, a, a sign that is, that is the, you know, powerful enough and that there are these basic signs and these basic pictures that give you access to the kind of, you know, the source code of the universe or something like this. And they would, you know, there are these books of engravings, elaborate pictures of things that sometimes they are based on things that Egyptians have a letter that looks like this. And so therefore, you know, they make a detailed kind of um, illusionistic kind of Renaissance European style, quote unquote, realistic uh, depiction in, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, Dohanga, um, a, an engraving, right? A copper and a brass engraving that is um, with chiaroscuro shading and all of this, right? Uh, and you can look at that and like get certain effects. It's almost like a kind of sympathetic magic by, from these pictures because, again, the, the picture is supposed to give you access to thought itself, right? Although this would contrast with the alphabetic supremacy that Europeans, uh, modern Europeans, come to have after white supremacy has firmly taken root and Europeans are losing their inferiority complex that they used to have before anything African or Asian. So they totally used to think that hieroglyphs were magic, but then they turned into a, a sign of primitiveness later. So in any case, language is constructed, uh, and signifiers you know, don't necessarily connect to the signified uh, in a certain way, right? That is an important insight, you know, as much as like whatever um, bourgeois postmodern theory uh, leads you away from materialism and away from class struggle the breadth of possibility of thought is a liberating thing and it's especially when you understand class struggle right and you can use that because there's all different cultures in world history that have had totally uh different ideas and they've divided the world in really different ways you know western musicology divides an octave which that's a natural kind of thing in, in the sense that the higher octave will be twice the frequency of the lower octave but in between there you can divide that into 12 as on a piano uh, you can divide it into 22 classical uh, Indian music has 7 svara, 12 svara prakar and 22 shruti in an octave Chinese and Japanese music uses a pentatonic scale, so there are five, and so on. So you can divide the same world in many different ways, and that provides us with all kinds of freedom, especially when, you know, if you think one of our problems today is that we have a kind of impoverishment of different social forms. We have, you know, we are stuck, as the Davids from the Dawn of Everything would say, well, then you need to get unstuck. You need to find other possibilities. And yeah, but this process of, of decipherment, right, it does move uh, 
toward a goal, but you know, some of those those way those what do you call wayward sons, like people who lost the way, can be really interesting too. Pseudo um, pseudo decipherment. Uh, and there's some of that, I think, for Sumerian, you know, now that we know that Sumerian exists, which I'm getting to, right? Uh, you know, we, we found, okay, we can read old Persian cuneiform. Then we realized, oh, a lot of this, now we can read some of this. We, we start reading some uh, cuneiform tablets using the, one, the signs that we learned from the Persian thing. Uh, and then we realized, oh, those, that Persian syllabary was borrowed from a syllabary used to write this language. It turns out it's called Akkadian. Uh, we didn't know that, you know, there's words in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, right, for Assyria, for Babylon, right? These are words that were known before the modern period, ethonyms that were known before the modern period, but this Akkad is something we learned about that was new. And hey, it turns out to be a Semitic language, Okay, well, you know, now we're deciphering back and going further back. Um, but we keep on, there's all these loan words that don't, that, you know, and there's, there's signs that we can't decipher uh, at first. And, uh, well, what's this? Um, turns out there's this other language still, and a lot of people resisted this. There's all, the whole history of resistance to that. No, it's not. This is some kind of secret temple uh, language again, you know this idea of signs in themselves. These are just four things uh, out apart from any language, because there can't. You know, there was great resistance to the idea that there could be. Uh, you know, not already. Akkadian is way older than Hebrew. You know, people used to think, oh, maybe in the Garden of Eden they spoke Hebrew, and that would be the earliest language. That would be the language of God. Uh, well, no, there's a way earlier um, Semitic language, but it's le- at least it's a Semitic language, right? Uh, but with Sumerian, it's it's a language isolate. We don't know any language that it's related to. Uh, and now you've got this whole other, okay, what's going on? You know, what happens to the foundations of the Western tradition and, and so on? Yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, and especially for me, because what does this remind me of, if not the use of the Chinese script in Japan? And the way that it's used, the Chinese script is used, uh, even in the you know, so, so-called native kana uh, syllabary in Japan, is just cursivized Chinese characters, which up until 1910 were not even uh, fully standardized, like which Chinese characters cursivization you should use for a, i, u, e, o. Uh, and they settled on only one graph for every sound, right? Ichi, ichi, on, ichi, ji. They called it. Um, it was like decided in 1900, but you can find books from like 1912 still that use the other ones that that are not used, right? And the only distinction between a graph that's being used for its meaning and a graph that's being used for its sound is uh, conventional calligraphic, right? Like you know, there develops a kind of convention whereby higher calligraphization, higher cursivization indicates that this is a phoneme this is just a logo um or a phonographic character uh whereas you know lower degree of cursivization says oh this you read this for the meaning this is telling you a um a word and and that's key linguists today don't they like to avoid the word ideograph because there's this whole history debate about the ideographic myth 
right? And that's really, that's a good name for what I was referring to earlier, the idea that Egyptian hieroglyphs access, you know, some kind of ultimate reality or something, right? You know, uh, well, that's not really the case. What it means, what it is, is that there are words in a given language, right? A given language has words for certain uh, concepts that it, it may have, you know, and those concepts can be really uh, different in different languages, the lines that are drawn. A good example of this would be in Japanese, there's a different word for hot water and a different word for cold water. So, you know, that's a different, reality is cut in a different place there, right? And there's a lot, I mean, there's, it goes from there to more complicated examples, right? So it isn't, an, it isn't a platonic essence of, of something, right? In, in Japanese, if, if language did uh, give you access to Platonic languages or essences, then you would have a different, in, in the Japanese world, there would be a different Platonic essence for hot water and a different Platonic essence for cold water, uh, right? And that would, so, oh, what do you do? And that means that, you know, a Japanese speaker lives in a, diff a different world from a, a person who speaks a language where water is water, um, and it can be either hot or cold, and you have to use an adjective to say that, right? Um, and in it, you know, this is the the big difference between like the the extreme version of that that everyone who speaks a different language lives in a different world is known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, you know. And uh, nobody really subscribes to like a very strong version of that. Obviously, translation is always possible. You know, you don't want to fetishize. Um, Again, that would put you in a kind of hieroglyphic kind of place to be fetishizing uh, things, right? And, uh, you know, naturally, as a Japanologist, uh, I, too, have moved back and forth in this kind of way. You know, you get really excited about the fact that, oh, this is a totally different, you know, way of looking at the world. And look at these, um, look at this no play, the way that it, the language is written in this way that cannot be duplicated in any other system and so you try to translate it into English in some super literal way that um, but that doesn't produce a, uh, anything similar to the effect of the original text in someone who doesn't know Japanese so you get into this problem of translation right really nerdy stuff here in this episode I guess but uh, um, but it's relevant for later um, it will become very relevant I think I'll save yeah so I'm going to tell you this now so I can totally imagine the way that Sumerian and Akkadian kind of articulate together. Uh, they talk about it in terms often, um, you know, Mesopotamian scholars often talk about this. So Mesopotamia, by the way, this is the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. These, this is the Fertile Crescent. This is the place where agriculture... Um, not agriculture was invented, but it's one of the first grain states right? So think back to the um, against the grain, James C. Scott stuff, right? There was a myth that like this was a desert because so, now there's a lot of desert around there, right? So it was all like they made the desert bloom precisely the Israeli slogan about why they deserve to displace the Palestinians. They made the desert bloom. Uh, but that is actually a consequence of over farming. That's a consequence of the grain states. Those grain states ate away at, you know, um, there's, there's lovely maps of sort of what the original river systems of Africa 
were. And there's tons of river systems all around where today it is the Sahara Desert. But that too, desertification spread uh, due to the, the Neolithic society. Actually, the Neolithic society that spread the grain state, right? That spread class society. Uh, you'll recall that real, almost all of the archaeological evidence of like ritual human murder, ritual human sacrifice. Um, you know, people, there's a the really impressive one at Chateau Hoyuk, I think, where a woman has her head cut off and her fingernails are digging into the the ground and so on and there's blood human blood and animal blood on the walls and pictures of headless human beings on the walls and uh, a head uh cooked in a in a cooking apparatus outside and this seems to be a narrow kind of uh elite feasting structure with a lot of white plaster and um that would be characteristic of a society where you have an elite that is beginning to monopolize agricultural surplus is what leads from kind of feasting society uh, culture into the Neolithic, uh, the grain state, right? Where you have a division between aristocrats and peasants just to situate all this in our, our grasp of world history. And that happens, you know, maybe a little bit before like 10,000 years ago, 12,000, 13,000, something like this, right? In the Near East, there is a separate Neolithic uh, in uh, what is today Peru, the, the Inca, uh, the forerunners of the Inca. There are a couple different um, city-states that proceed and, and lead ultimately to the Inca, right? Uh, there, that has some different characteristics. I don't know as much about that, but um, yeah, you can see, I mean, there are these very striking kind of early examples of what seems to be uh, some of the most pure and, vi yeah, nasty class violence that you can see in some of these human sacrifice uh, scenes from the Near East from this area. Um, and so, yeah, but because it, it's desert now, people often used to imagine, oh, they, you know, they must have, the, the, the genius involved here, you know, there's this sense too, very non-materialist, very idealist view of how these um, things come about. Not that ordinary people use their wisdom of everyday observation of the land and all kinds of other living beings and, develop these these things these techniques um to produce so here's there's a bit of a split among archaeologists anthropologists you have someone like ian hodder who has a bit more of an idealistic view that thinks that the wonderful knowledge of the calendar was created must have been created by the specialists by the elite the elite needs to exist first and they come up with the smart way to run uh, agriculture and stuff, and uh, the people then follow that, right? Uh, whereas Brian Hayden argues against that in a very materialist kind of way. He can be like right-wing in other ways that I can't follow, but uh, in arguing against Hodder, he points out quite uh, correctly, I think, that it's actually ordinary people that develop these relationships with other living beings and the cycles of nature and their wisdom of how to run things is what really gets all of this started.
And when the parasitic elite comes along, they come up with all fancy calendars and, and systems, priestly systems, right, uh, to disguise that as their creation when it really belongs to the people. But actually, largely, it seems that the social or evolutionary stimulus that led to domestication of animals and plants was for feasting and, and also that led to production of food as opposed to hunting and gathering. Because hunting and gathering is easy. It's extremely fucking easy. If you have the requisite knowledge, you can get everything that you need with a work week of, again, 13 to 16, 17 hours per week of what we could conceivably call work, right? So you don't need to develop any of this. You don't need to develop any of this, but in places where there's, some, there's a lot of surplus, um, you know, after your 13 hours per week of work, well, now what else is there to do? You can make art, you can sing a song, you can throw a feast, and feasting becomes this huge uh, activity. And so people, you start to see people keeping raising, uh, domesticating cows and, right? I mean, it all comes nearby, animals nearby that you keep and feed and you eventually slaughter for a feast, for a feast. And this is a feasting society is what is actually the driver of um, the development of agriculture and animal husbandry and, and basically food production as opposed to simply gathering food from the landscape, right? Because you don't need to do it. You don't need it, right? Um, that's the really interesting thing. Uh, the, the Japanese Marxist who's all over the news these days, you know, and getting like pr trumpeted by the Guardian. And, you know, I was, um, I, I had, I'm not, I do not have time to, to read that in Japanese. Um, but I'm glad that reviews are starting to come out of the English translation now, and we can see, um, yeah, it's it's extremely, um, it, I mean, it's kind of like primitivist and, and post-Marxist. Uh, you know, he basically, he claims that Marx abandoned historical materialism. So the idea that all human history is the history of class struggle, to the extent that it is history, right? It's written down. You know, there's not a lot of evidence that he uh, abandoned that, but... Um, Saito Kohei needs to, did I say his name before? Yes, yeah, Saito Kohei, did I not say it? Um, we're talking about Saito Kohei, Kohei Saito, uh, right? Marx in the Anthropocene or something like this, eco-socialist Mar Marx. Um, he, he starts from the assumption that eco-socialism and historical materialism are fundamentally incompatible, which is just, I don't understand, right? I mean, certainly, I think that relying on we're going to be able to get the lithium batteries together and build all the solar panels and, and mine the lithium, you know, where's that going to come from? We're going to be able to exploit the people to get the lithium out uh, in time to make the solar cells that are going to save us with this high-tech society that we currently have and the high levels of consumption that we currently have. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think we need quite a lot of degrowth just like Saito Kohei recommends, right, ultimately. We need very much, you know, less uh, carbon-intensive lifestyles um, yesterday, right, uh, because it's easier, like, the, you know, this is why I'm thinking of this, because um, hunter-gathering is easy. It is easy. 
right? And even the domestication of animals and plants and, and all of these technologies, they're only motivated by partying, just having a party. We're going to feast, you know? Um, let's have a nice little feast. We'll, you know, we'll get, we'll raise a nice, nice, you know, uh, animal to, to slaughter and it'll be nice and fatty and it'll have, make a real good, uh, have a good time, right? Not because we need to, that is not our way to sort of guarantee our subsistence, uh, at first, at first. But when it does become the way to guarantee subsistence, then it's the, it's really the basis of a, a class difference and that you know again notice how that is going to proceed by means of handicapping the lower class there's all kinds of ways today too i think with the adoption of novel biotech one of the scariest possibilities is that of handicapping um an underclass and you know that might sound pretty sci-fi or something but uh particularly bill gates connected foundations have been caught all over the place doing some weird things with vaccines in the countryside, in Africa, in India, in the Philippines. And this is nothing new. Uh, Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, is about all kinds of unauthorized experimentation that white doctors would do on people of color in the United States. Her more recent book is called Carte Blanche, uh, The Erosion of Medical Consent. And... That is a real thing. Uh, you know, even the Snopes debunking of the idea that Bill Gates's foundation was caught with uh, vaccines in Africa that contained the sterilizing agent HCG in them. Uh, even that Snopes article starts off by saying, yeah, the claim is that they sent these samples to a lab in South Africa where they tested for HCG. And then their big debunk is, no, there are no labs in Kenya that are able to test for HCG. So obviously this is false. But the original claim is that they sent it to South Africa. So what about it? Is it true or not? I want to know. And recall, that was one of the things that uh, when Bill Gates, uh, his wife divorced him, it was in the, the report on like, you know, she seeded, her people must have seeded that like, yeah, one of the reasons is that he kept hanging around with Jeffrey Epstein all the time. And I didn't like that. He kept wanting to talk to Jeffrey Epstein about what he was doing with the, what kind of vaccine? In India. Bobby Rajesh Malhotra has done um, some stuff on that. He's been on Historically, for example, with Esha. So you can listen to that. But the point is that it, it's a, one of the primo way to control people is to give them a handicapped version, you know, a domesticated crop that requires all kinds of maintenance and stuff. And you have to spend all your time growing it. Uh, and you don't have any time or freedom to just go to the mountains, go to the river, go and get stuff for yourself, which actually is way easier. And when it comes to all kinds of uh, periods of collapse, that is what people actually do. And archaeologically, we can see that their bones become healthier. You know, they, they're living healthier lifestyles. They're getting better nutrition. They're living longer and so on. You know, the, the historical record that we have, um, you know, again, writing itself arises because people are running a grain state. In every case that I know of, you know, um, when it comes to a writing system that really records like full speech, I don't know of a case where it, it didn't arise, right? 
all kinds of people have systems of like drawing conventions for drawing pictures, right? Um, that's all over Turtle Island, for example. People have conventions for drawing a picture that will be understood by people from the same culture, you know, draw stick people and draw arrows and, and so on, right? Um, but when it comes to full writing, it's because people needed a ledger system and a spreadsheet to keep track of grain taxes that are being received by the aristocrats. Yeah. So, oh, another thing about the Philippines, um, really interesting stuff on the news right now. So, you know, Duterte had this thing going where he was, um, you know, viciously uh, clamping down on the actual communist revolution and people's army that is uh, in the mountains there among the indigenous people. Uh, he vicious, viciously clamped down on a new level after what had happened is the, the after Marcos, right? After the Marcos dynasty, which you can read about Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Uh, after that, right, there's a period of kind of rollback and the Philippine people voted to kick out the American military bases, but Duterte invited them back in. However, one thing that he also did was invite China in. So he was a bit like neutral still, right? Uh, China is helping build a port there, which if they ever default on that loan, the Chinese government will own that port outright, which, you know, I mean, they're offering aid, still way better conditions than the West. Uh, the West still owns way more of the third world already. You know, like the, the one, a single French billionaire owns like every port on the West coast of Africa, etc. So... I support China as much as you can support a, you know, very kind of liberalized, um, certainly very much reform, you know, under Xi Jinping. Um, there certainly is uh, a movement back toward um, at least kind of like social democracy, right? But yeah, no, I've read the, Chris the Kissinger transcripts. They support Israel and, you know, they arm uh, Duterte and now um, Marcos Jr., that's the next step in the in the progression. They've got Marcos Jr. there now, and uh, you know he's not straddling between China and America. He seems to be going way back. We're going to pull the whole thing under the American umbrella. Um, to some extent is what it looks like to me at the moment. Uh, he set it up to come here to Japan for a diplomatic visit, and they had the Philippine flags up um, near the Diet Building and. Uh, you know, they, um, they brought him in, they rolled out the red carpet and they were able to do that actually by, uh, because the Philippine government finally deported a lot of dual citizens. There were a lot of people who have Japanese citizenship who were sitting in these, these facilities. It's just a fascinating story. Um, these guys hanging out in, in the word they use is concentration camp. Um, Kyosei Shuyojo. Uh, but the Japanese TV, at least, is very keen to present this as like, oh, they live such a luxurious life. They bribe everybody um, because what they're doing, they're kingpins in uh, what's known as, um, what would you call it? Like furikome sagi, uh, the uh, scams where they call an old lady or an old man and they say, it's me. I'm in trouble. I've been arrested. You know, send me, I need you to send a whole bunch of money. Send all your savings to um, this, this bank account. 
and they trick people, you know, poor people, poor pensioners, you know, into sending their life savings. Uh, and uh, the kingpins in a lot of these operations are in the Philippines, right? And they are hang. They're they've been arrested. Like they're they're arrested and they're like they're in this thing that is kind of like a jail. Uh, but they have so much money that de facto they can bribe everybody. They can live, you know, a pretty luxurious life. They were showing them pictures of them with like ping pong tables and pool tables and shit. Uh, so, you know, they're just hanging out there having a fun time, supposedly. Uh, and part of the conditions of this kind of new level of renormalization here was ironing that out and sending those people back to Japan, you know, because they're like they're like maybe half Japanese, half Filipino people who are doing this and it may be you know the 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 experts on the tv sort of say you know there may be an anti-social organization above these kingpins that is actually where the bulk of this money is is going right so um there's a whole interesting world there and uh you know um you gotta you gotta hide your power level. That's another thing that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast. You know, it's like, um, especially with the way that things are going, right? You know, the, there has been a new level of normalization with Korea too, and this too is about getting that war started over here. We gotta have a Ukraine conflict over here too. You know, that's what the Rand Corporation said in their report. That's what, you know, if anything, the Seymour Hirsch, you know, revelation of what everybody knew that the America fucking blew up, uh, carried out a terrorist attack on uh, German critical infrastructure. Uh, and that's what they do to their um, vassal states, you know. Uh, there's, yeah. um, there's, there's a, a wonderful, fun discussion on the East is a podcast recently uh, about this kind of thing. Um, although furiously dungest, you know, in a way that I can't really follow. Um, you know, I wish I could be a dungest. I fuck with China a lot, but you know, it's like, what? Um, there's certain levels of things. Um, even in that discussion, they're kind of saying like, yeah, they're doing capitalism way better than, um, okay. So, um, you know, I mean, that means maybe we support, you know, cause, cause we definitely want a multipolar world, but why do we want a multipolar world? We want to open up places for people to, to really get it on, you know? And that means changing relations of production, changing re revolutionary change in relations of production. And yeah, that can still happen uh, within China. You know, Xi Jinping has, has moved it in a really positive direction. Um, but I, you know, I haven't lived in China for very long. I've lived in, you know... I've I've been there, you know, a little earlier on before Xi Jinping at the height of kind of capitalist restoration, right? So I, I know that, you know, the dominant force is, is maybe in some ways still, I mean, definitely in some ways still, uh, right? Something that, you know, and it's wild to see, you know, here I've kind of given up on my Japanese Twitter account. Uh, some of you may know that I have a Japanese Twitter account, but I don't open it anymore. It just got so sad. You know, everybody's a social chauvinist. Um, everybody is transphobic. Everybody is and kind of homophobic. Uh, even though some of these people are really into like Yuri manga, there's this one dude who like is always posting, you know, like like lesbian teenage girls, and um, 
<laughs> and is rabidly anti-trans. Uh, and also like a major, a hell, like a dungist for Putin, basically, is what I can say. Uh, right? They love Putin and they think, you know, somehow it still is communism. Uh, right. Which is not quite. <laughs> I, mean, come, I mean, there are people there who would like the Soviet Union back. Um, and more power to them. That would be fucking awesome. But so the shadows are being cast over here, you know? I mean, it's like, uh, I have a little bird did tell me, and I don't, you know, it's just a little bird. Maybe the end of April, early May, uh, after the Golden Week holiday is when they will finally stage a fake missile exchange, or maybe a real missile exchange, uh, but staged and planned, uh, between, with Taiwan and, and, I think they've got to involve the Japanese self-defense forces. They've got to involve Japan because Taiwan by itself is not going to be Ukraine. They're not going to push themselves into the, such a suicidal thing, especially after they've seen what happens. But, you know, that's what the ruling class needs right now. You know, I, I would love it if they, God, well, so anyway, you know, you can imagine what's going to happen if you get Ukrainian type conditions here. They already have moved the command of specifically the American troops in Japan. Uh, their, their command structure has moved from Hawaii to Tokyo uh, in preparation. So that's another piece that's in place. You know, Japan just upped its defense budget by, you know, it's, it's double digit percentage at like 17% or something like this. I don't know. Um, the, the current, uh, mass media is all howling about China raised their defense budget by 4%. So, and they have an agreement already in place now, uh, where coalition forces can enter Japan with no, uh, visa controls. So, you know, Nazis from Ukraine, uh, all kinds of soldiers of fortune, quite literally, that are being trained up, you know, I mean, that's the really thing that I take from, you know, Matt, Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade are doing this Hell on Earth series about the 30 Years War, 80 Years War, Protestant Catholic Wars, and the way that that sort of um, galvanized and created the Terminator skeleton that became uh, European capitalism. Very cool, very cool, very good. Um, definitely no critique of race over there, however. That's unfortunate, but um, that's cool to see. But one of the things that you really see from those wars of religion is it's like one of these places like Ukraine that, you know, and, and you can, I think they deliberately created a place like that, a Petri dish of soldiers of fortune and, you know, just insane, murderous, soldiers who cannot stop soldiers of fortune who are programmed to kill and they're going to be over here so awesome that's going to be that's probably how i go out but um in the meantime you it'd be awesome maybe some of you maybe someone should stop listening to this fucking podcast right now uh go be a normie you know you got to go undercover maybe some people if you, if you feel if the spirit moves you um because it's the time, it's time, you know, things are, uh, there's going to be surveillance like you never imagined before, um, and it's really going to be going down. So we need people all over the place that are, you know, varying levels of out, right? 
And you gotta, you gotta hide your power level sometimes. I love that expression. I think maybe I can credit that to Jimmy Fallon Gong. I love that expression. You gotta hide your power level sometimes. You gotta translate between different registers. Don't show them the mysterious hieroglyph right away. The secret cuneiform character. Speaking of which, um, let's get into our first text here, the Agushaya poem. This is a uh, more classical period, right? Which means 1850 to 1500. Oh, and actually we know uh, this mentions that it was composed under Hammurabi. So that's the Babylonian ruler famous for Hammurabi's law code. Um, and you'll notice something really interesting about law and its status in this poem because it's about you know the goddess of war so much first of all so much of this early stuff it's all cults of goddesses and the goddess appoints the king right so that's interesting to think about in terms of like layers right we've already seen how there are archaeological sites on crete for example where you see the you know, human sacrifice, like full-on, we are ru the ruling class, like the like Jeremy Fragrance kind of shit, you know? When you go through the deepest of the deepest and you survive, then you can fuck life, baby. You can fuck life. And you have a boner. Love it. You know, this kind of like, I'm going to cut off heads, I'm going to drink blood. And that is still happening in the back rooms of the palace complex, but in much larger structures that are clearly made for all of the members of the community to come for a big community festival, you have there a royal cult, you have a priesthood, you have a forward-facing kind of, yeah, there's nice gods and we're serving them by producing the grain and creating a harmonious society and so on, right? It isn't that, you know, aristocrats are, only exist to plunder and pillage. Um, it's that they are helping you. They're your, we are your parents. We are your, you know, we love you so much and we care so much deeply about you. Uh, you know, uh, and that we can see archaeologically places where that coexists, right? I've said this before, but it's really good to remember. Um, and that layering is something I want to keep on thinking about, right? That layering, that's something that's relevant, isn't it? Uh, and you can think about that in terms of these goddesses, right? Because it's all about goddesses, but then, you know, they're giving authority to the king. Think about that in terms of the historic defeat of the female sex. Uh, we know from which the Engels, um, Marx outlined it, right? It's Marx and Engels uh, co-write most of this stuff. You know, it's not individual authorship of almost anything in the Marx-Engels canon, by the way. Another reason why it's silly to talk about Marx thought this and that, you know, it's not quite that. 
Uh, but Engels, Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State, which, you know, we've got some anti-trans people out there uh, recently who are obviously sleeping on that text, including one fucking guy who has Engels as his avatar and clearly has not read uh, fucking Engels. But um, what we see there is that, you know, egalitarian societies have matriarchal structures, if anything, um, it's at least matrilineal because uh, they tend to have group marriage. It doesn't matter yet uh, who the father is of a given child. Every child is treated as the, the child of uh, every man of the same generation as that child's mother uh, because uh, there is not private property to pass down. Private property, passing down private property, that's the imperative that comes into being under class society, and that's why you need patriarchy. That's why you need, that's the birth of the father and the historic defeat of the female sex, in Engel's words. Uh, you know, before that, and, you know, like, I say before, but in, in societies that didn't go Neolithic, societies that did not go Neolithic, you know, what we might call indigenous societies, some of them, uh, that are like this, remained uh, very much this way, where paternity was not so important, at least until, you know, colonialism sort of forces all kinds of primitive accumulation and, you know, people um, do these things. That's complicated history. But uh, here, I think we see still quite a lot of need uh, to honor goddesses and, and place them at the center of, of the pantheon right, and, and derive legitimacy from them. Uh, so there is a goddess of war and violence called Ishtar. And in this poem, the, the goddess Ishtar, war, is going, is going too far, basically. And the god of wisdom, Ea, decides to make a goddess of discord, quote-unquote, Saltu, um, to contend with Ishtar, discord. So, without further ado, I'd like to read bits of this, right? Uh, and we want to think about this, right? What do we know? Maybe I will say, I'll put this out. Uh, another thing we know from Engels is that the state is by no means a power forced on society from without. Just as little is it the reality of the ethical idea, the image and reality of reason, as Hegel maintains. Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an indissoluble contradiction with itself, that it has cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it's powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, classes with conflicting economic interests, might not consume themselves and society in sterile struggle, a power seemingly standing above society became necessary for the purpose of moderating the conflict, of keeping it within bounds of, quote, order. And this power, arisen out of society but placing itself above it, and increasingly alienating itself more and more from it, is the state. I think that would be very relevant here. Also, special bodies of armed men, prisons, etc., in contradistinction to the old Gentile, that is, gens, like tribal or clan order, the state first divides its subjects according to territory. 
the second distinguishing feature is the establishment of a public power which no longer directly coincides with the population organizing itself as an armed force. This special public power is necessary because a self-acting armed organization of the population has become impossible since the cleavage into classes. This public power exists in every state. It consists not merely of armed people, but also of material adjuncts, prisons and institutions of coercion of all kinds, of which Gentile or clan, Gens society, knew nothing. That is, uh, ultimately, if you really fuck up, the police are going to come and kill you. And the more class struggle that you have, the stronger this public power will become, right? Again, it grows stronger, however, in proportion as class antagonisms within the state become more acute, and as adjacent states become larger and more populated. We have only to look at our present-day Europe, where class struggle and rivalry and conquest have screwed up the public power to such a pitch that it threatens to devour the whole of society, and even the state. Yeah. Because the state arose from the need to hold class antagonisms in check, but because it arose at the same time in the midst of the conflict of these classes, it is, as a rule, the state of the most powerful economically dominant class, which, through the medium of the state, becomes also the politically dominant class, and thus acquires new means of holding down and exploiting the oppressed class. That is an, uh, there is a layer, right? There's a layer on which uh, that is above or behind or, you know, there's a man behind the curtain uh, of the state, and that is the ruling class, which has its own institutions apart from the state. Uh, but they run the state as their private property, ultimately, de facto, right? So there's this really, so if that, you know, we can, let's keep that in mind as we read this. Let me praise the greatest one, the warrior among the gods, the daughter of Ningal's might and fame. Let me extol Ishtar, the greatest one, the warrior among the gods, the daughter of Ningal. Let me tell of her might. Her grandeur is manifest, her way is hard to fathom. She is always in battle, cunning is her stratagem. We're missing several lines. She dances around gods and kings in her manliness. Now we have the first section. She is the preeminent of goddesses. The praises of Ishtar let me sing. She holds in her grasp all divine authority. She bestows it wherever she wills. Ishtar holds in her grasp the lead line of the peoples. Her goddesses heed her command. Uh, again, we're missing several lines. Maybe I won't say that every time. Young men are hacked off as if for spear poles. There is a certain hero. She is unique. Ishtar is surpassing. She knows how to smite down. Her celebration is the melee, staging the dance of battle. She comes to grips with heroes, taking none by the hand. She leads off with the most valorous. Frenzy in battle, passion in strife, were shown forth as her portion. Again, a big gap. The royal scepter, the throne, the, ti the tiara are given to her. All of them are her due. Okay, so who has the, right, the means of violence, right? You, the means of killing uh, has authority. Uh, he gave her bravery, fame, and might. And this may um, refer to Anu, the kind of father of the gods. So again, you know, all of a sudden we get this father kind of as an afterthought. Uh, and I think, you know, Engels would certainly say that's because the father came into being later in human history and he's needing to be sort of written into 
the, the oral histories that we had before that. He gave her bravery, fame, and might. He surrounded her in abundance with lightning bolts flashing. Once again, he added to her uncan uncanny frightfulness. He had made her wear awesome radiance, ghastliness, valor. As for her, she felt that valor in her heart. She schemed battle. In the dwelling of the leader Ea, look out for her terror. Ea is the god of wisdom. Could this be, you know, a kind of intelligentsia? You know, you have a scribal class born that is now writing these texts, right? Um, <clears throat> that's interesting to think about kind of liberal <laughs> is this a liberal uh intelligentsia that sort of is a member of the ruling class but you know has all kinds of moral ideas and philosophical ideas and wants to feel sort of good about itself you know i think we we're quite familiar today with uh how people like that sort of come into being she is more fearsome than a bull her clamor like it's raging in her might she set forth turning not a hair at her uproar, Ea, the wise god, became afraid. Ea became enraged with her. Turning not a hair, um, literally not standing in tatters, meaning obscure. Right. So we still don't understand a lot of this stuff. Uh, there's, there's a lot of text missing. Um, but he says, hear me, great gods, Ishtar is something. You know, she let her be trusty something. Let her have muscle. Let her raise riot. And what he's actually doing, he's proposing we're going to create a god called Strife, another goddess, right, to fight Ishtar. Um, is, is he the first Leninist is what I want to say. Let her be fierce. Let her hair be extraordinary. Remember that, any revolutionary, let your hair be extraordinary. Um, the note says, exceptional hairiness was considered a sign of primitive strength. Um, so that'd be another good reason. Yeah, there were um, surveyors. This is another, this is something I forgot to say about Thoreau last time, um, or two, two times ago. Uh, he is a surveyor, siren, you know, Kill Bill music. He was a surveyor. He was one of the people that decided who got to accumulate the, the great American fortunes, you know. Um, those were the people that would go out and survey the countryside uh, of the conquered territories of the settler government of the United States, and they would mark off uh, the primo land as swampland and allow the really connected people to buy it for pennies on the dollar and, you know, the rest of it then would be uh, apportioned out to settlers, white uh, settlers. For the definitive podcast series on that, check out Subliminal Jihad, Origins of the Great American Fortunes, of course. Um, but that was, that was Thoreau's whole thing. He walked around with a surveying stick because, and that's his whole thing about, I don't respect fences and I just walk wherever I want. Um, you know, he styles this as kind of um, quasi-indigenous wisdom that he is using to do this. Um, but he's a surveyor. That's why he went to fucking Harvard. That's why he, you know, that's why he's well-connected and everything. But yeah, let your hair be extraordinary um, if you're going to fight back against Ishtar. Uh, more luxuriant than an orchard. Let her be strong of frame. Let her complain. She must be strong. Complain. Let her gasp for breath. She shall not tire. We should not tire. Let her not hold back her cry, day nor night. Let her rage. And indeed, let us too 
uh, have our rage. Although you, you do want to keep it to a dull roar. You got to keep it to a slow burn, right? Make sure you don't burn out. Uh, make sure you get your sleep. Make sure you stay off social media as much as you can. Um, make sure you study, take care of yourself, breathe, you know, take your vitamins, get, you know, rub a dog, smell a cow, um, get out in the countryside if you can, climb a tree. These are good things. But yes, let her rage. The gods assembled, debated. They could not do it. They replied these words to the leader, Ea. You are the one suited to do this thing. Who else could bring about what you cannot? Uh, he heeded the words. They answered him. Ea the wise scraped out seven times the dirt of his nails. He took spittle in his hand. Uh, Ea the wise has created Saltu discord. The, the dirt of the nails of wisdom. Something very kind of um, poetic about like materialism there and the interaction between base and superstructure. Um, you must be the god of wisdom, but then scrape your nails. And that's where the goddess of uh, the revolutionary subject uh, will come from this material base. God Ea has straightway set to his task. He is making Saltu that she fight with Ishtar. She is powerful in her form, monstrous in her proportions. She is artful as none could rival. She is a fighter. Discord is her form. Uh, indeed, uh, if you would like to become a member of the Kingless Generation, head on down to patreon.com slash irregnata, that's uh, unruled in Latin, feminine, singular, and for the low price of 333, you can become a member of the Kingless Generation and you get access to all the premium episodes and a Discord server. Discord is her form. So yeah, you can come on Discord and uh, discuss with us how to bring about revolutionary change in relations of production, right? Monstrous are her proportions. She is artful as none could rival. She is a fighter. Her flesh is battle, the melee, her hair. She is surpassing something. She is fierce something. She has extraordinary strength. Uh, we're missing bits of the the clay tablet, unfortunately. Saltu is girded with combat for clothes. Her clamor is born of a deluge. She is strange, terrifying to behold. Raging, she takes her stand in the midst of the depths. The words that come from her mouth go round about her. Ea, the Lord, made ready to speak to her, to Saltu, whom he created. He says, keep quiet, listen, pay heed to what I say, hear my orders. What I tell you, do. There is a certain goddess whose greatness is surpassing beyond all goddesses. Strange and cunning is her handiwork. She is mighty in male, the supreme lady, the capable one, daughter of Ningal. I have created you to humi humiliate her. In my cleverness, I gave to your stature valor and might in abundance. Now be off, go off to her private quarters. You should be girded with awful splendor. Bring her out. You there. She will rush out to you. She will speak to you. She will demand. Now then, woman, explain your behavior. But you, though she be furious, show no respect to her. Answer her never a word to ease her feelings. What advantage shall she have of you? You are the creature of my power. Speak out proudly what is on your tongue, and as much again before her. Now there's more missing... So the extraordinary of form dispatched Saltu drove her to insults, contempt, and calumny. 
Ea the wise, whose reasoning is extraordinary, goes on to put yet a word right to her feelings. The sign of Ishtar, the queen, he gives her. It is Ishtar, indeed. She is braver than all other goddesses. He makes her know her grandeur. He well described to her that prideful self, lest this, lest she avoid her later. She is the divine princess. Her commands are mighty. She is the mistress whose way none has barred. We're missing more. Yeah, so her fury and anger, like the welling up of the sea, will overcome you. Your speech will... Saltu flew into a rage. Her face altered horribly. She turned. She was lordly, like a fugitive, something, something, truth. Did not know something prepare something in this way something the signs of her strength find out all about her learn of her haunts bring me her signs recount to me her behavior the giver of orders the tried and true ninshuber so ninshuber is um the servant of ishtar the goddess of state violence whom she she's sending to do cointelpro against saltu She's trying to find out her, her ways of behavior. What are her haunts? What are the signs of her strength, right? This is class struggle. This is revolutionary intelligence work. Another great term that I heard the other day, I think um, Shooter Libby on Twitter uh, introduced the term epistemic injustice to talk about the way that ruling class moves are hidden. You know, actual structures of power are hidden uh, if you only look at establishment media. And so that struggle of revolutionary intelligence and counter-revolutionary intelligence is being dramatized even here, right? In the 18th century BCE, you can see it's just as important today as it was back then, right? And that's why you need to hide your power level sometimes because um, Ishtar is sending her spies to, to find out what, what you're doing. And right here, she's sending Ninshubur, the god of counterinsurgency. And it goes, wise, strong, uh, words are missing, something, something, hero. He went out to the depth, something. He went alone to blank to face her. He looked twice when he saw the exceedingly great one. He fell silent, something. He examined her form. She is but bizarre in her actions. This is the uh, interpretation of Foster here translating this, that it's stuttering, actually, although that's not universally accepted. But I like it. She is but bizarre in her actions. She but behaves unreasoningly. In her form, she is m mighty. She makes many c cries for battle. She is adorned with uh, awesomeness. It, in her onslaught, she is t terrible. She is murderous, bullying, vicious, has the young man and, and the maid, uh, something. The young man and the maid. That's interesting. Something, something, clamor. So did she learn her sign. So even here, too, the, the sign is like the, the secret truth of something, I, I guess. Ishtar is, again, carrying out this intelligence work against Saltu. Angrily, the most capable of the gods, the all-powerful, took the sign the intelligence proudly in her might fiercely she drew herself up the warrior ishtar the most capable of the gods the all-powerful proudly in her might fiercely she drew herself up in her greatness she grinds up her enemies she turns not back yada 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 she says a word proudly she speaks these are the signs of her might agushaya the capable lady to ea did say 
Why did you create Saltu against me? Who is blank of mouth? Something, something. The daughter of Ningal is... Uh -huh. You made her enormity. Saltu has set her clamor against me. Let her return to her lair. Ea made ready to speak and said to Agushaya, um, that is Ishtar. Uh, and it's the name of this poem, the Agushaya. It's about Ishtar. Agushaya, hero of the gods, as soon as you said it, then I certainly did it. You were driving me to it and caused delight at your having done with this. The reason Saltu was made and created is that people of future days might know about us. Let it be yearly. Let a whirling dance be established among the feast days of the year. So clearly, this is an origin story for a festival of counterinsurgency. Uh, successful, I think, right? There is state violence. There is counterinsurgency against it. But the state violence wins out. Uh, and we get to have a little um, play reenactment of that in order to uh, diffuse tensions and so on. You know, you can talk. It's a little carnivalesque moment, perhaps, right? You can imagine this. Look about at all the people. Let them dance in the street. Hear their clamor. See for yourself the intelligent things they do. Learn now their motivation. As for the king who heard from me this song, your praise, the sign of your valor, Hammurabi, in whose reign this song, this my praise of you, was made. May he be granted life forever. So that's how we know that this is from the 18th century BCE, uh, because that's when Hammurabi was around. Uh, and we also know a lot of more about uh, Hammurabi. There's a recent book um, by David P. Wright called Inventing God's Law. And he points out, you know, people have always known that the laws of the covenant in Exodus and, you know, the other books of the Pentateuch, the Torah, show a lot of similarities with Hammurabi's code. Uh, but Wright really, and, and people usually explain this by saying, well, there was an oral tradition and it's just kind of diffuse uh, influence. Um, cuneiform literacy had collapsed in the Near East by about 1200 BCE. So in the actual time when, uh, you know, Moses would have lived, there was not cuneiform knowledge around, um, but there would have been oral knowledge. And it was just orally passed down, and then it was written down when there was, you know, like late in the first millennium, or mid-first millennium or something, right? Uh, but uh, the similarities, Wright argues, are, are way too uh, close for that to be the case. You know, there's really... And he lays this out very clearly in tables in the book. So check it out. Um, the, first of all, the kinds of laws that you have, you know, this, you start with like debt slavery of males, you have debt slavery of a daughter, death from striking with intent, uh, child rebellion, men fighting with an injury, um, you killing one of a lower class than you, um, they're in like almost the exact same order. Right, so the order of it is the same. Also, there are like general moral principles, right, about like do this and don't do that, and so on, um, as opposed to like casuistic laws, right, case law um, that I just mentioned, right. That is kind of um, buttressed or or surrounded at the beginning and the end by more general things, you know, do this and don't do that, and do this and don't do that. 
Um, that structural element is the same as well. Um, there's really a lot of, of um, dependency. And so what Wright argues is that uh, it would be more like the Neo-Assyrian period, sometime between 740 and 640 BCE, when Mesopotamia exerted strong and relatively continuous political control and cultural sway over the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and a time when the laws of Hammurabi were actively copied in Mesopotamia as a literary canonical text. And it's important as well to understand what's actually new about Hammurabi's code, Right, some of the French Jesuits dealing with Algonquian and Iroquois speakers in uh, northern, you know, Turtle Island, they found that people didn't had a a society of like like restitutive justice, right, rather than retributive justice. And Hammurabi's code, a big characteristic of that is actually it switches from restitutive justice, like making it right, right. Like if you do something bad, your whole clan has to like get together and and give things to people, rather than uh, you often individually, right? It switches to individual. Um, that is one of the differences, by the way, between Hammurabi's code and the Hebrew uh, Torah, is that Hammurabi's code uh, recognizes group punishment still, right? So it's a switch to punishment, still group punishment, then the Hebrew law uh, only recognizes individual punishment, usually. Okay. So that's always interesting. But this is, you know, the actual time of, the actual reign of Hammurabi is the 18th century BCE in any case. So that would be a date of composition for this poem. Let me praise Ishtar, queen of the gods, Agushaya's might, as the capable lady, as for rapacious Saltu, strange of splendor, whom Ea the leader created. I made signs of her might. I made all the people here. I have made fair her glorification. I gave her fame worthy of her. The lioness Ishtar quieted. Her heart was appeased. So it's, this, it's an epic poem of uh, kind of class collaboration. It's a pion to class collaboration. Let's just be nice. Let's just, you know, I mean, sure, when the ruling class violence gets out of hand, it's no good. And then you got to rebel. Uh, there, you know, and there is a real sense, like it's right to rebel here, I think. Saltu's power is is legitimate, uh, but then once uh, Ishtar has been uh, cured of her excesses, then the two can be in balance, and Saltu, uh, the lioness Ishtar quieted, her heart was appeased. Now here, I think it would be fun to get into a little bit, uh, some texts that give us a view into everyday life. You know, in my field, the big divide is between modernists and pre-modernists, and one always feels a little bit jealous as a pre-modernist because the modernists seem to have this cool, sexy divide that they can talk about where modernity comes in, and modernity changed human psychology, and it changed the way that people live and think and everything. Um, modernity being, of course, a code word for capitalism, <laughs> of course, uh, that you can't say or you couldn't say at that time. I mean, it's not even that long ago, but well, I do think that that was huge. Obviously, capitalism. Uh, there are more. There's more that's continuous. That I. I that's something I want to say. You know, there's a whole book 
edited by Ian Hodder called Consciousness, Creativity, and Self at the Dawn of Settled Life. So this would be like the Neolithic transition. And yeah, I mean, I bet there could have been changes, but uh, I like the way that he kind of throws cold water on the whole thing in the introduction. He's like, yeah, we made this sexy book, but actually, I don't really know. Like, did people's people's brains really change? Like, did neurology really change or just people started having these new class relations and relations of production, right? Um, A lot more is, is in common. And I think one thing that we see is that there's all kinds of technologies. People still do things for each other. People still, you know, it's not this alien world. It's not fucking Mars here, right? Uh, there's one called At the Cleaners. This is classical period as well. So like 1800, 1500 maybe BCE, uh, where a sophomoric fop is lecturing a cleaner in absurd detail as to how to treat his garment. Come now, cleaner, let me give you a commission. Clean my clothes. Don't neglect the commission I am giving you. Don't do what you usually would. Oh, he wants special treatment, okay. On what basis can he expect special treatment in this society? How, how do you do that? How does that work? You should lay flat the fringe and the border. You should stitch the front to the inside. You should pick out the thread of the border. You should soak the thin part in a brew. You should strain that with a strainer. You should open out the fringes of the something, something. You should something with clean water. You should blank as if it were fine imported, maybe, cloth. In the overnight, maybe, something. In the closed container, something. You should blank soap and mix in gypsum. You should beat, maybe, it on a stone. You should stir it in a crock and rinse it, perhaps. It's reconstructed. You may want to blank the blank and comb it. You should tap it with a cornell tree branch. You should fluff out, maybe, the flattened nap. You should something, something, the wooden, the woven work with a pin. You should split the seam and cool it. You should dry it in the cool of the evening. If the south wind has not dried it, you should put it on a rack in the east wind. Make sure it's cool. Carry this out. I'll make you very happy fast. You should deliver it to my home. A measure of barley will be poured into your lap. So he's going to pay for this with grain. Right. And, you know, indeed, having uh, fancy clothes like this is often taken as a sign that you at least have a feasting society. Right. And maybe some people are monopolizing the fancy clothes. Not, not always. I think there are societies where everybody gets fancy clothes. You know, like I think this could be a society kind of still like that. I don't know. Um, but he, I mean, he is paying with grain. So whatever. Uh, we are having concepts of value that are beginning to form around that, right? And it's always, it's interesting to think about grain again, you know, like uh, people don't do this with potatoes. They don't do it with guavas or melons. Uh, They do it with grain, which very readily becomes a standard of value, right? You can have a certain volume of it and so on. Uh, Much like here, right? A certain measure of barley. And everybody knows what that measure is. We have a standard of value that is in place here, right? Um, the cleaner answers him by Ea, Lord of the Washtub. So we just read a thing where Ea, we know that Ea is the god of wisdom. So calling him Lord of the Washtub, and there's actually a note, there's another text where uh, someone seems to ironically say, I swear by Ea, your clothes won't be in the shop a long time. And they clearly mean that the clothes will be in the shop a long time. So you're swearing by the wrong god, in other words. And uh, that's happening here too. So that's a joke. That's a, right? 
uh, that's irony, right? Irony poison in uh, the 18th century BCE. It's not so different. By Ea, lord of the washtub who keeps me alive. Lay off. Nobody but a creditor or tax collector would have the gall to talk the way you do. Okay, so the worker doesn't have to. The service worker does not have to uh, do whatever he says or be obsequious or anything. Uh, and so we can have this, this little uh, back and forth. Or maybe is it, would they be in, you know, expected to be very obedient? And the reason why this text is funny is because he is unexpectedly answering back and arguing back. I don't know. Again, this would be a transition point in human history. We're moving into a more stratified society. But it could still have a lot of characteristics from the old, more equal society. Um, right. But, you know, here, on the other hand, then we have a creditor or a tax collector. So clearly, um, yeah, this is the grain state. Yeah. Um, nor could anyone's hands do the job. What you ordered me, I could not narrate, declaim, speak or repeat. I don't know what you're talking about. Come now upstream of town at the city's edge. Let me show you a place to launder. So they still were doing laundry in the river, I think. The big job you have on your hands, you can set to yourself. Don't miss your chance. Seize the day. Do ease, if you please, the countless tangles of a cleaner. If you can't give yourself more breathing room, the cleaner is not yet born who will pay you any mind. They'll think you a ninny. So, as they say, you'll get all heated up, then you'll have a stroke. There seems to be some kind of pun happening here that we don't know. Uh... So, no, I think in general, you have a worker here. There's a relationship that is much more equal, you know? You're trading a thing for another thing, and I think that's what you originally had in human societies before all of this, you know, grain and value and class. And then here is a Babylonian folktale called The Poor Man of Nippur, which shows us uh, some hunter-gatherer energy still surviving within uh, some some exchange and barter kind of energies still still around, despite really quite a, a hierarchical society in some ways. Here too, I think I want to have an eye for the transitional nature of this, as well as some universals, perhaps. Uh, the poor man of Nippur, a bit, it's a bit picaresque as well, right? Uh, there once was a man of Nippur, poor and poor and needy. His name was Gimil Nirnurta. A wretched man. He dwelt in his city, Nippur, in abject misery. He had no silver as befits his people. He had no gold as befits humankind. Uh, so precious metals uh, as, as money, I think we see. Um, that as well for currency. Uh, his larder wanted for pure grain. His insides burned, great craving for bread. His face was wretched, craving meat and good drink. Every day for want of a meal, he went to sleep hungry. He wore a garment for which there was none to change. He took counsel with his wretched heart. I'll strip off my garment for which there is none to change. I'll buy a ram in the market of my city, Nippur. He stripped off his garment for which there was none to change. He bought a three-year-old nanny goat in the market of his city, Nippur. He took counsel with his wretched heart. What if I slaughter the nanny goat in my yard? There won't be a meal. Will there be beer? Where will be the beer? My friends in my neighborhood will hear of it and be angry. My kith and kin will be furious with me. I'll take the nanny goat and bring it to the mayor's house. Okay, so he's, so this we have like older feasting culture, I think. The, you know, you, you have a, a, a goat, but 
you don't have beer, you don't have, you got to have a feast, uh, is what he's trying to do. If, if my family and my kinship structure are going to be involved in this, uh, so instead, what is he, you know, I, I want to try to understand this. Instead, he decides to do something else. I'll take the nanny goat and bring it to the mayor's house. I'll, the mayor, I'll work up something good and fine for his pleasure. Gimil Ninurta took his nanny goat by the neck. He went off to the gate of the mayor of Nippur. The gate is, is important here too. To, uh, I think there are a lot of walled cities um, here increasingly. Right. Even the Algonquians and the Iroquois had begun to have um, kind of palisades to some degree. Right. Um, they would have sort of fighting among each other, but like always very, very low, low scale. Uh, right. And they actually uh, the the bows and arrows that they had were much more accurate than European pistols, guns. The European guns made a lot of noise. But they couldn't shoot very far, and they couldn't shoot very accurately. So, you know, as soon as the indigenous people learned that, they could win almost any conflict. And it's really only the disease. It's really only the plagues uh, of smallpox, apparently. You know, we don't quite know. Uh, Certain plagues that that start to really decimate them. And then uh, it's possible for the, the, the settlers to really come in and take over there. But they did have palisades around their settlements. But they actually consist of just this loose series of stakes that are separated by a meter between them, maybe. you know. So that would be in great contrast to Mesopotamia, where you have these cities with lots and lots of privatized property inside that are being protected from barbarians outside. So to, uh, to, to, to Kulti Enlil, who minded the gate, he said these words... Say that I wish to enter to see the mayor. The doorman said these words to his master. My lord, a citizen of Nippur is waiting at your gate. And as a greeting gift, he has brought you a nanny goat. The mayor was angry with Tukulti Enlil. Why is a citizen of Nippur kept waiting at the gate? Bring him in, I guess. The doorman something to something. Gimil Ninurta came happily before the mayor. When Gimel Ninurta came before the mayor, he held his nanny goat by the neck with his left hand. With his right hand, he greeted the mayor. May Enlil and Nippur bless the mayor. May Ninurta and Nusku make his offerings flourish. The mayor said these words to the citizen of Nippur. What is your trouble that you bring me a gift? What is your trouble that you bring me a gift? Notice. Okay, so we see like a system of... Um, and this is indeed like an... an as we saw with... Um, the eloquent peasant from Egypt. It might be a similar sort of system where a local official is entrusted with simply figuring out what's the right thing to do and then doing it. You know, there's not necessarily a fine law code uh, in every case. And it would be more about like case law. What do we usually do in such a case, right? And then a lot is left up to the wisdom and discretion of a local leader like this. Uh, and so, as a result, bringing gifts and kind of having this relationship is important. Uh, there's a gap of some lines. Uh, the mayor has the goat slaughtered and the meal prepared. So this is something you can do. Okay, it's like, okay, we're going to have a feast then with this. Um, give him, the citizen of Nippur, a bone and gristle. Give him third-rate beer to drink from your flask. Expel him, throw him out the gate. So what he's done is shortchanged him. I think normally what would happen is if you brought an official a gift like that, he would say, oh, yes, let's have a party. Feasting is going to happen, right? 
this is still kind of pre-Neolithic uh, customs are surviving, I might suggest. Uh, he gave him, the citizen of Nippur, a bone and gristle. He gave him third-rate beer to drink from his flask. He expelled him, threw him out the gate. As Gimel Ninurta went out the gate, he said to the doorman who minded the gate these words, Joy of the gods to your master! Tell him thus, For the one disgrace you laid upon me, for that one I will requite you three. And then we actually get like a kind of Puss in Boots kind of story where he keeps tricking the doorman and getting his way in to beat up the mayor. Um, he keeps, so this is like, uh, the, the bands of armed men, uh, and the courts and jails at their disposal have not, uh, developed very much at this point, right? It's kind of like, um, almost reminds me of young Stalin, right? Like Stalin keeps on getting arrested and sent to exile in Siberia, but it's kind of like, as soon as the police leave, you can just like go back, you know, sneak, sneak back, uh, so when the mayor hears that uh, this threat has been made, right, he, he laughed all day. Uh, Gimel Ninurta set out for the king's palace, quote, by order of the king, prince and governors give just verdicts. There's suddenly this thematic little statement here. I don't know how to read that exactly. Uh, it reminds me again of the eloquent peasant, right, because there is an ideology of like, yeah, local... People might not be, local officials might not be uh, so much on the up and up, but there's somebody higher up the, the chain that actually will be. And by the time you get to the top, you're going to get a just verdict. But he, that's not actually what happens here. He, Gimel Ninurta comes before the king. Uh, he prostrated and did homage before him, uh, but he doesn't uh, start a you know appeal uh, or anything, what he says is, O noble one, prince of the people, king whom a guardian spirit makes glorious, let them give me at your command one chariot that for one day I can do whatever I wish. For my one day, my payment shall be a mina of red gold. So he's renting, the king is like a rent-a-car. Uh, the king did not ask him, what is your desire that you will parade about all day in one chariot? Uh, they gave him a new chariot, fit for a nobleman. They wrapped him in a sash, something his something. He mounted the new chariot, fit for a nobleman, and he set out for something something Duranki, which is Nippur. That uh, Gimel Ninurta caught two birds. He stuffed them in a box and sealed it with a seal. His birds in a box. Okay, again, property is being used as a kind of weapon here. Uh, he went off to the gate of the mayor of Nippur. The mayor came outside to meet him. Who are you, my lord, who have traveled so late in the day? The king, your lord, sent me to something, something. I have brought gold for Ekur, temple of Enlil. The mayor slaughtered a fine sheep to make a generous meal for him. See, so he's being fooled by status symbols and right, outward uh, displays. Uh, while in his presence, the mayor said, Ho, hum, I'm tired. But Gimel Ninurta sat up with the mayor one whole watch of the night. I wonder if he drank him under the table or anything. Uh, from fatigue, the mayor was overcome with sleep. Gimel Ninurta got up stealthily in the night. He opened the box lid. The birds flew off into the sky. So he's going to blame the mayor for his property loss now, too. Wake up, mayor. The gold has been taken and the box opened. The box lid is open. The gold has been taken. Gimil Ninurta rent his clothes in anguish. He set upon the mayor, made him beg for mercy. He thrashed him from head to toe. He inflicted pain upon him. The mayor at his feet cried out, 
uh, something pleading, My lord, do not destroy a citizen of Nippur. The blood of a protected person sacred to Enlil must not stain your hands. They gave him for his present two minas of red gold. For the clothes he had rent, he gave him others. As Gimel Ninurta went out the gate, he said these words to Tukulti Enlil, the, the guard who minded the gate, Joy of the gods to your master, say thus to him, For the one disgrace you laid upon me, I've requited you one, two remain. When the mayor heard that, he something all day, maybe he wept all day, I bet. Uh, we're missing the word. Gimil Ninurta went to the barber. He shaved off all his hair on the left. Uh, that's a doubt, uh, doubtful reading. A shaved head was perhaps a sign of being a physician, the note says. I wonder. But that would be really cool if he had like a, a kind of shave one side and leave the other long or something. Uh, disguise yourself. He filled a fire-scorched pot with water maybe. He went off to the gate of the mayor of Nippur. He said to the doorman who minded the gate, say that I want to come in to see the mayor. Who are you that you should see him? I am a physician, a native of Isin. So again, Isin, the, the uh, center of medical knowledge, we see again, who examines something when there are disease and emaciation, something in the body, something, something. When Gimel Ninurta came before the mayor, he showed him his bruises where he had thrashed his body. Oh, so the mayor is still wounded from the, his last visit. Uh, the mayor said to his servants, This physician is skillful. My lord, my remedies are carried out in the dark, in a private place, out of the way. He brought him into an inaccessible chamber uh, where no friend or companion could take pity on him. He threw the pot into the fire. So maybe that's why it's water to extinguish the fire, and thus it's, it's dark. Uh, he drove five pegs into the hard-packed floor. He tied his head, hands, and feet to them. Then he thrashed him from head to toe. He inflicted pain upon him. Gimil Ninurta, as he went out the gate, said these words to Tukulti Enlil, who minded the gate, Joy of the gods to your lord. Say thus to him, For one disgrace you laid upon me, I have requited you two, one remains. Gimel Ninurta was careful, pricking up his ears like a dog. He looked carefully at the folk around him. He scrutinized all the people. He sent, maybe, a certain man, having recouped his losses, gave him a nanny goat for his present. Go to the gate of the mayor of Nippur. Start shouting. So all the numerous people will crowd around at your shouting. I'm knocking at the mayor's gate. I'm the man with the nanny goat. Uh, so he's getting him to impersonate Gimel Ninurta himself and go there. Gimel Ninurta crouched under a bridge like a dog. The mayor came out at the man's shouting. He brought out the people of his household, male and female. They rushed off, all of them, in pursuit of the man. While they, all of them, were in pursuit of the man, they left the mayor outside alone. Gimil Ninurta sprang out from under the bridge and seized the mayor. He set upon the mayor, made him beg for mercy. He thrashed him from head to toe. He inflicted pain upon him. For one disgrace you laid upon me, I've requited you three. He left him and went out in the open country. The mayor, crawling, went into the city. So it's like he decided to go be a hunter-gatherer, is one way that you could read it, which indeed is much better for you. And that's what people did when they became impoverished and when their societies, when their grain states, uh, would collapse, as I mentioned. 
another one here, there's a, a, a story about a physician, a prominent physician from the city Isin, famed as a center for the healing arts, who goes to the city of Nippur, a center of Sumerian learning, to collect a promised fee. As he asks directions, he is entered in elementary Sumerian, which as a scholar he is supposed to have mastered, but failing to recognize the academic language of the land, which even a vegetable seller in Nippur can speak. Yeah, this is a very educated city. Uh, he assumes that his interlocutor is abusing him or insulting him, right? The text ends with a plea that the schoolchildren should run such an ignoramus out of their city. One presumes the discomfited physician never got his fee. Right, so Ninurta Sagantarbi Zaemen, Zaemen, brother of Ninurta Mizidesh Ki Agani, nephew of so-and-so. Oh, so it's not a patronymic. That's interesting, right? Like, again, the power of the father, not as strong. We want to, you know, we, we know who his brother is, who his nephew, who, he, who his uncle is, who his uncle is. Uh, that's, that's key as well, because um, in more matrilineal societies, the most important man in a family will actually be the brother of the mother. That is the uncle. Yeah, I think that's what that is. So having been bitten by a dog, went to Isin, city of the Lady of Health, to be cured. Amel Ba'u, a city of Isin, priest to Gula, examined him, recited an incantation for him, and cured him. For this your cure of me, may Enlil, Lord of Nippur, bless you. If you will come to Nippur, I will put a bib on you. I will feast you on choice viands, like nice pieces of meat, and I will give you two massy jugs of fine beer to drink. Where should I go in Nippur to your city? This is fun too. How do you tell someone a place to go in this? Do they have street names? Do they have addresses? No, they don't. When you come to Nippur, my city, you should enter by the Grand Gate. Uh, so again, the gate is important. And leave a street, a boulevard, a square, till Lazida Street. Well, there is a, n a name of a street. And the ways of Nusku and Nininema to your left. So you put that on your left. We're imagining like a scene uh, in our minds here. We're not looking at it from above like a map would, would look, right? You know, like go east, go north, go west, right? We're definitely in the, of the point of view. So you put these things on your left, okay? Um, you should ask Nin Lugal Absu, daughter of Kiaga and Bilulu, daughter-in-law of Nishu Ana Eatakla, a gardening woman of the garden Henun Enlil, sitting on the ground of Tilazida selling produce, and she will show you. So, okay, we have a combination of like a place and a person. Find a, pl a person and the person will tell you the thing, uh, right? Amel Ba'u, citizen of Isin, priest of Gula, arriving at Nippur, entered by the Grand Gate. So he follows these instructions, right? Finds the gardening woman. Uh, clearly she is simply giving and the selling, you know, will, will be trading, trading the vegetables that, that she herself has, has grown, I think, right? The produce, might be fruit as well, uh, but the means of production have not been alienated from this person at all. This is a, a subsistence uh, producer who is then also bartering from her surplus. And then here's the key phrase where, you know, remember this is a bilingual society. Akkadian is a little more common maybe, but Sumerian is the more learned language, right? And this guy's supposed to be a doctor, but he's, I mean, he's more of a medical doctor, right? 
Nin Lugalapsu, he says. He is, re- he is answered, Anni Lugalmu. And then he replies, why do you curse me? And she says, why would I curse you? I said, yes, sir. That was Sumerian. He didn't understand. May I ask you to show me the way to the house of Ninurta Sagantarbi Zayamen, son of Mizidesh Kigani, nephew of so-and-so? Um, Enutushmen, why do you curse me? He says, why would I curse you? I said he is not at home. Where did he go? And she answers, again in Sumerian, Edingirbi Shuzianna Sizkur Gabari Munbala. Why do you curse me? Why would I curse you? I said, uh, he is making an offering in the temple of his personal god, Shuzianna. And then a narrator is sort of telling us, what a fool he is. <laughs> I mean, it's like a farcical play, you know. Um, the students ought to get together and chase him out of the grand gate with their practice tablets. Ha, ha, ha. Never going back again. So you have here an interaction between two different languages, and that is a common feature of all kinds of different societies. I wonder if there are classless societies. You would think that this could happen, right? Uh, it tends to be grain states, though. As, as far as I know, I don't know of a case of inventing full writing that represents every word of human language that was not motivated by bookkeeping for a grain state. But it would be really interesting to talk about sort of vernaculars uh, versus lingua franca and how does that relationship work in egalitarian, trans-egalitarian, neolithic grain state, ancient empires, and so on. You know, what we know from the written record the best and what I know the best, you know, just being the language, ancient languages nerd that I am, is that, obviously. Uh, and there you have a very fascinating interplay between writing and, and uh, write the, the uh, more broadly spoken language and maybe a classical language is the really way to talk about it, right? A classical language. You got Latin is functions in this way. Uh, all through the European Middle Ages, people actually speak Latin and would carry out intellectual disputes in the Latin language, and then they would go back and speak German, English, French, Italian, Romanian, uh, you know, or Hungarian even as well, right? When when parts of Hungary are not, you know, Muslim, actually, like the Islamic world reached into the Dalmatian coast right across the way from Italy, and also Hungary then. And then the the big uh, book on the Sanskrit sphere is Language of the Gods in the World of Men, maybe, by Sheldon Pollock. And that's about the Sanskrit sphere, which, of course, goes from East Africa all the way over to Southeast Asia. You know, the real border there is like Cambodia, Vietnam. Cambodia and Vietnam both speak uh, Mon Khmer languages. It's the same language family, but the main difference is that Vietnam fell into the Sinosphere 
uh, of Chinese influence, whereas Cambodia is in the Sanskrit sphere. And that's why you have Angkor Wat, one of the greatest monuments of Buddhist culture right there. And as well, uh, it's through that that Islam finds its way all the way to the Philippines, right? Even out there, you get a little bit. And, and the, uh, there is an alphabet for Tagalog, which comes from Sanskrit as well. Sanskrit-based alphabet gets all the way out there, right? Uh, and then, of course, you have the Sinosphere. Sinosphere, though, again, is logographic. So that uh, gives it a strange, like an even greater power to be multilingual, right? Because you don't have to learn Chinese as a language in order to read the Chinese language. You can skip around. You, well, you can read, um, you know, Han literature It would be a good way to talk about it. Han, people use the word Sinosphere. Uh, there's not really adequate terminology in English and maybe not even in other languages. Like I mostly know the Japanese scholarship. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. It does, it almost challenges the traditional critique of the ideographic myth, which David Lurie at Columbia has written a lot about this and his writings are fascinating. You know, he uses the word xenography for the way that the, uh, Han dynasty dialect of, right, the, the Han Chinese language became the way that it was written, right, became a lingua franca within, uh, you know, people who could speak it, but even, you, like, very quickly going away from whatever center of culture, uh, people don't even learn to speak the lingua franca because it's just, uh, you know, graphs. It's just reading. You, you can read. You can even skip around, put arrows, I mean, kind of like arrows, symbols, and, and ordinal markers, one, two, three, A, B, C, next to the words, And that tells you how to jump around the text and read it in the grammar of your own language, your own vernacular, right? And, and when you do that, you can ask the question, is that a text in Chinese, right? Is it in any language? Maybe it is. You know, it's not accessing human thought directly like an ideograph is supposed to do in the old kind of medieval European imagination, looking up to Egyptian civilization and as this magical thing, right? It's not magic exactly, but uh, what it is is conventions of auto-translation that people memorize as part of learning to read. That's what it means to read in East Asia, is to look at a Han text and jump around it and read it in your own language. And then when you write, you also write like that. That's just how you write. You write uh, in the Han order, usually, although the in Japan, for instance, the influence of the Japanese language makes the order change pretty quickly. Sometimes people go hyper, hyper Chinese order in cases when it should be. And that's how we know that they're doing this, even in the very earliest samples that we have of Japanese writing from the 7th century. There is um, a certain temple to Kanon, uh, where I forget... There's a it's toilets because they uh, okay so uh, in the seventh century when we begin to see evidence of widespread reading and writing in Japan the main medium for writing is these strips of wood called mokkan and the mokkan are uniquely well preserved in the soil of the Nara Basin but also because these strips of wood their life cycle would would end usually with them being used as toilet paper, 
Uh, this was a common thing to use sticks, a stick to kind of w scrape your butt, right? <laughs> and um, that is, that's actually figures in some Zen koans and stuff, a, a byword for, uh, which are s written and set in China, of course, but I, they must have done the same in China. You know, they talk about a shit stick as something that is worthless, right? It's one of their ways of sort of iconoclastic, uh, you know, flip the script kind of judo flip somebody is talking about the great dharma that somebody has you know and he's like oh that's not worth a shit stick or something right so but these shit sticks get then buried in the ground which preserves them and they have all kinds of writing on them so you know i mean that's and that's very like it becomes a very rich metaphor when you realize that they were wiping their arses with uh you know inscriptions that may have had all kinds of holy writ mixed into them who knows you know but on one of these uh there somebody is trying to memorize the opening lines of confucius's analects and the chinese grammar there happens to actually follow the same word order as the japanese but they have i mean they've made several mistakes but one of the mistakes they made that's really interesting is that they actually hyper they use a hyper chinese word order where they switch it around to like match what they think the chinese word order should be and it's wrong and that proves that what is in their minds is not you know what is it in chinese shui or shi zhi um but it's actually manabite tokini koreo naro mata yorokobashi karazuya, right? So, and that would be the what you get in Japanese from skipping around the Chinese there and reading it as Japanese, and that's what they would have had in their heads, not the Chinese, right? That's a higher level of. I mean, they did have that when they were hiring monks for for temples. You know, I have, I know. Uh, when there there's documents like that that survive of like you know what a job search right the 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 job search like who do we want this candidate that candidate they would be ranked by could they can you read a han text as japanese can you read a han text as the han chinese language and that was it's better if you can do if you can actually read it as chinese uh but so there's all kinds of graphic play between uh, the sounds of the Japanese language, the sounds of the Chinese language, the graphs that are used, you know, the pronunciation for each Chinese graph in Chinese, the pronunciation in Japanese. Uh, there's all kinds of things that happen, right? Like, uh, you know, there, some of the greatest things, the, the Mang Yoshu, uh, the earliest collection of poetry, contains some poems that are written in this really fun kind of rebus style where they'll use as many graphs as they can to like riddle out you know what's the sound they'll write the sound of bees and you're supposed to read that as boo right like buzzing and the the voice of a horse and that's e so you know e boo uh and you know an animal that whatever uh lives on the rocks and that is a word for barnacle which is se i believe and so you know all that to write you know this it's very ornate and fun and they're playing around uh, 
Which is funny because the Meiji period, then the modernizing, you know, they had to come up with a, a narrative of progress to modernity and to Westernness as well, which at that time you have the alphabetic supremacy is in place. And so there's this idea in Japan oh, fuck, what have we been doing all this time? We, we have this very complicated writing system. Clearly, this is not going to work for modernity. Uh, there's even debate like, uh, should we totally abandon the Japanese language and just speak English, first of all? I mean, Mori Arinori, one of the pioneers of Japanese education system, uh, really literally proposes that. Uh, you know, less extreme cases would be people who were all about let's write in Roman characters, at least, and get rid of all our writing systems before. And uh, another extreme case would be there were people who were studied with Alexander Graham Bell, uh, I think, and um, they got into all kinds of shorthand, shorthand, yeah, like a transcription of sound. They were coming up with all kinds of systems in the West at that time for transcribing sound. There is something about modernity where there's a huge fetish for sound in language and everything else, you know, and and that is when, you know, right, they're inventing the telephone, they're inventing the recording, radio, communicating with all the members of one nation state in the national language becomes a huge imperative, right, because also workers have to go into the factory and they learn how to practice their trades in that national language, creates all kinds of cohesion and stuff. Right. So the question of how is Japan going to do that? One of the answers was actually, let's adopt. We'll be the most modern ever and we'll just adopt phon uh, phonetic shorthand. You know, you can draw just a straight kind of line that that scientifically accurately. You know, there was this idea you could directly express the exact sound of any anything. Right. And it would be superior. It would be super modern. It would be super good for capital, for capital accumulation, which that has become. Uh, the main imperative at that time. But with a uh, non-alphabetic system, you're still always playing with the rebus principle. You can always go back to that base level of like, I have a, I've drawn a picture of a bee. I've drawn a picture of a leaf. And I want to say the word bee leaf. And so I'll write a bee, I'll draw a bee and I'll draw a leaf and it's a rebus. So bee leaf. Right. And so now, but then again, some other context, I want to say the sound B, I can draw a B, you know, and then that becomes a little convention that there's a tradition then of phonetic writing and a tradition of logographic writing based again, not on, you know, platonic ideas, but on how a given word is pronounced in a given language. Uh, and that language that is the source of those becomes uh, a certain kind of lingua franca. Um, although different from, you know, French in the 19th century or Latin in the medieval. I, I feel like I should, I want a new word for medieval because the rest of the world was actually very developed at that time. And only Europe was medieval, um, right? The period of pre-Renaissance Europe, right? Pre-white uh, supremacy and imperialist Europe, yeah? Um, you have there, right, a, a phonetic uh, lingua franca in the Latin language, right? But there's other ways to do it. And actually what we had with uh, Akkadian and Sumerian is similar to this. And so there's all kinds of play there too. And that figures in a really interesting parody on the Mesopotamian epic tradition on Sargon. 
Sargon was one of the earliest kings who united a territory all the way from like getting into Persia, getting into Iran in the east, and then reaching the Levant, reaching the Mediterranean in the west, you know, in these epic poems from later on in the tradition is when we actually have these. Uh, he washed his weapons in the sea and so on. That's a proverb, pro- proverbial expression for how broad his empire was. And uh, this one, here there's one, though, uh, found in Before the Muses under the title Sargon, Lord of the Lies, which actually constitutes a parody on the Sargonic epics. Uh, And it antedates all known manuscripts of that tradition. It's actually from before any source that we have for the celebratory ones. Fascinating stuff. It begins with an epic statement of territory conquered, satirizing such statements, right? Um, It turns to an elaborate conceit setting up a stela. And this is really hard to, you have to unpack it quite a bit, but it depends on a wordplay on the Akkadian word for lies and the Sumerian word for writing. Uh, And then at the end, there's this statement of like, it's a joke that you have to unpack and understand kind of uh, dispassionately it doesn't it can't be funny exactly but Sarkhan says that what is written on a tablet must be true and there's a wordplay on Sumerian name and Akkadian water and then uh, so basically lies and writing get sort of equated here and so we can see that even at this early date there are people who are conscious that writing is a technology of class struggle it is a technology of maintaining unequal relations of production, and that's why it came into being. So it goes here. Thus says King Sargon, king of Agade, city of great streets and squares, the mighty king who speaks with the gods, whose strength the storm god gave him. I captured territory from where the sun rises to where the sun sets. In a single day I gave weaponry to seventy cities. I captured their princes and I destroyed their cities. I swear it by Adad, Lord of Strength and Ishtar, Lady of Battle. I saw a gazelle. There's a wordplay on gazelle sabitu, tavern keeper sabitu, and capture shabatu, with perhaps a further wordplay on an old Assyrian meaning of shabatu, to initiate legal proceedings against someone. Uh, And there's this parallel story in the Gilgamesh epic, where uh, he attacks a a tavern keeper. And it may be a reference to that image as well. Um, It goes again in Sargon's voice. I cast a brick into the river. Then while I was... uh, I cast a brick into the river. This is a wordplay on cast, nadu, and a scholarly word for stila, nadu. Uh, So I set up a stila is is also what we're saying. Uh, while I was running, running is a wordplay on an epithet of Sargon, Pakash Inanna, in which the first part is etymologized as runner or courier, Lukash. Um, so, yeah, runner, courier of, maybe of Inanna, the goddess? I don't know. So I was running, that's a reference to that. Um, my monumental inscription was formed, so I set up a falsehood for all time. Uh, Here the English translation is bringing out the latent kind of joke meaning that is hidden, right? You have to hide your language when there are rulers around who might hear 
what you say and be offended, right? If you're going to engage in critique. Again, you have to hide your power level, right? I love this. Uh, you know, in Ireland, there's all kinds of, um, what do you call it when you switch the consonants around? It's a, a spoonerism, right? Like, um, you know, something that, I mean, you don't really have to hide. You would have to, you wouldn't want to say this in front of a priest, I suppose, but um, a jokey way to say, there's no hope for me soul. There's no hope for my soul uh, would be, there's no soap for my hole. If you say, there's no soap for my hole, it means, oh, it's, you know, terrible uh, situation or something. Uh, the hole, you know, in, in that's fascinating too. Like this rectal image of the self or the, you know, if something is bad, I was sick in your hole. It would, oh, it's, or um, don't bother your hole about that, right? And there's, there's a polite way to say hole, which is hoop as well. Um, don't bother your hoop about it. Uh, which means like, don't trouble your soul about it really. Like this is a word for soul, but it's actually, we're referring to the anus, um, (laughs) which, you know, your digestive system is actually really important to you. All your, uh, little microbes living in your body, right? In this, in this era right now in Japan, as I've said, we're in the season of hay fever. And so, uh, I'm thinking about that all the time. Right, but you can yeah switching the words to hide because in Ireland uh, we were the first to be colonized by the Brits a, a good eight hundred years, so we developed all the different adaptations and ways to uh, hide what we were saying to each other from the overseers around, right? And one way to do that is switch the switch the letters like that. Um, so this here too, they're hiding their power level on this inscription here, so that. Uh, and it looks like it was successful because it survived, hey, all these thousands of years. And we can actually read this piece of satire. Uh, again, I'd like to suggest that I think a lot of this early grain state uh, authoritarianism it is tenuous. It's very, very tenuous still. And it's not at all clear that this is the evolutionary trajectory. This is the best way for humankind to be. Uh, just as it is not clear today either (laughs) that that's the best way uh to be but we continue uh a falsehood for all time yeah that's bringing out um the wordplay on commemorative inscription is musaru uh water is mau or mu okay um sumerian right is sar akkadian sar means lie or falsehood okay so the word for writing in sumerian sounds exactly like the word for lying and falsehood in Akkadian. And that's fertile ground then for some satire here against the ruling class. Then I ran after and seized the gazelle. I raised up the brick or handiwork, maybe, from the water, uh, the stela. You know, you can think of uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, the steel at megalithic cultures are found all over the place. Not quite all over the place. I don't know. Maybe there's of limited meaning, actually. People critique that, that, you know, just because there's Stonehenge and, and a whole bunch of similar things on the European continent and they love their Egyptian obelisks that they bring back, you know, St. Peter's Square in Rome, uh, many other squares, Piazza del Popolo has one. Uh, there's Maria Sopra Minerva uh, has a, a fun uh, Bernini sculpture of an elephant with an actual Egyptian obelisk on top of that. Uh, that's a fun one. 
Yeah, so they love their obelisks. Europeans love this so much. Um, and there's, there are megalithic cultures that were extant into modernity in like Java, I want to say, Indonesia maybe. But anyway, in, in certain places, yeah, it does seem like these uh, megaliths as spirit reservoirs for ancestral energies and, you know, maybe class power. I mean, it really does seem like uh, a lot of these societies that have megaliths are highly class stratified. And in that sense, the kind of 2001 A Space Odyssey reading of the megalith does kind of bear out, right? So then, verily, it's very common in Sargonic uh, epics to talk about how many oxen he slayed, right? His great surplus of wealth, right? That, again, that's something that you see in uh, the Pyrenees Mountains, right? That's one of the theorized origins of, um, of trans-egalitarianism in the European uh, Near Eastern kind of world, right? I got all the beef jerky, all the moose jerky that I could want, right? Uh, but Sargon says, Verily I slaughter a thousand oxen, six thousand sheep every day. Became hostile. So this is weird. Uh, so what's the, what's the thing? The, the reading of the name is unclear. Wordplay on, quote, became hostile, igre, said of the dark forest in Sargon, king of battle, which is another composition that we have, and invited for a meal, ikre, with a Q. So it could be a pun, a pun there, but they, they're, there they've left the strange, become hostile to my 7,000 warriors, who daily ate breast meat before me, my 3,000 warriors who ate rump meat, my 1,000 cupbearers who ate the top cut of the lower leg as far as it was roasted, my 7,000 warriors ate breast meat. Uh, so that's a common, they're echoing their common sargonic epic phrases about, you know, how many warriors ate before me every day. Uh, they ate so many sheep every day, right? I treat my boy as well. Um, but here, it's, there, there's a parody. There was not enough breast meat for anyone behind Anyone who wasn't, yeah, lower on the pecking order or something? Um, breast meat alludes humorously to the use of the word breast in Sargonic inscriptions in the expression rival, literally one who turns the breast. Okay, so that's an epic, like, epithet? Yeah, an epic epithet. Um, rivalry means turning the breast. So I'm no longer facing you. My, my chest is turned to the side. Uh, that's a sign of hostility. Right. And indeed, in martial arts, right, you, you turn your body to the side when you're ready to fight because you're presenting a smaller target. Right. So it, it appears that colloquially that was an expression for uh, discord, in fact. Right. And they're using they're bringing that out by saying breast meat. You know, otherwise they don't have a reason to say breast meat. Why do you say that? Well, they're referring to kind of the idea that underneath this display of class power and class violence, well, there's class struggle actually happening, and this is actually, right, complicated. My cook scorched the meat. Oh, no, farcical, you know, terrible. Uh, so for his punishment, he slaughtered another 100 oxen and 200 sheep and fed my servants too. I swear it by Adad and Ishtar. See, isn't that... It's it's funny how a, a, another source of humor can often be someone is claiming something a little too hard. The lady doth protest too much and so on. If you say thank you once, 
It can mean thank you. If you say thank you, thank you, thank you many times, maybe it doesn't mean as, as much, right? Uh, I think of, in Japanese, you know, the word hi can mean I, yes, it can mean also just I heard what you said, okay. Uh, I'm not necessarily agreeing with you, especially if you say hi, hi, um, twice. You know, it's like, okay, got it, fine, shut up. Um, if you say it three times, it's, yeah, it, it can have a very different meaning. Right. For seven years, a month and 15 days, verily I sat with my troops in darkness. Here we have a wordplay on troops, umanu, and creditors. Umianu. Okay, so maybe there's something with Sargon and debt, something with Sargon and... Yeah, okay. Maybe he racked up a lot of debts with his conquests, and then there was problems there. Uh, we can see the early grain state was on absolutely shaky legs. They were collapsing all the time, right? And class society always will collapse. It's going to collapse again, and that's why you and I need to organize for change in, re in relations of production and figure out how we're going to survive this collapse because it's coming on real quick. And the only question is... Are we going to have socialism or barbarism, as a wise woman once said? When I came out, verily I made a package of carnelian and lapis. Verily I made a distribution to the land. Either Sargon distributed the leftover food or semi-precious stones at court to the land. It's not clear. Not a clear joke there. Indeed, I smote the Amanus Mountains in two. There's a wordplay on smite and drive in a peg. Those are wor uh, the word mara marashu for discussion. See, there's a yeah somebody who's gone into this, uh, and like a commemorative peg, I set up my statue between them. All kinds of wordplay that you know you have to like know both of these two languages to really get it, uh, right? And you have to imagine seeing the cuneiform graphs probably to really get it. I made the prince of Tukrish. Where animal hide. Normally that's a sign of mourning, here perhaps a disgrace, or a joke on social custom, uh, right? Scholars are always trying to figure these things out. What could it mean? I made Hutura wear animals' heads. I covered the Cypriots' heads with cloth like women. So uh, covering uh, it might be a wordplay on Akkadian, I covered, Aktum, with a, and a Sumerian word for a kind of garment, Aktum. Um, somebody else thinks a shroud is meant, so like a burial shroud then. Okay. Obviously, like women, here we, we see that women is actually like a byword for something weak, something, right, someone defeated. So the historic defeat of the female sex has, has happened uh, in this one little place anyway, uh, in a certain way, even if they do pay all kinds of lip, ser lip service to goddesses, right? Uh, as for the Amorites, I went through them all, cutting off their penises as well as their noses. Um, but here we have, that's actually bringing out a wordplay on righteous, prosperous, Isharu, and penis, Isharu. The word occurs with Amorites in Sargon, King of Battle. That's another epic that, again, that survives from later, but, you know, maybe it existed before this, and this is referring to it, yeah? But over there, they actually say uh, Sargon's enemies have everything but righteousness. Yeah. And the that would be humorously interpreted here as like they have everything but penises. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Uh, I wrapped the heads of the men of Kilaru in strapping. Once again, I released the something of the men of Kanesh. I shaved the midline of the heads of the men of Hati. I made a point of the Gutian toggle pill, toggle pin of the Luchmians. So the Gutians are frequently referred to as hunter-gatherers, barbarians who are outside of the Mesopotamian sphere, I think. So the Gutians were perhaps a thorn in the side of the Luchmians, a mountain people who were further out as well. I don't know. I made the garments of Lulua and Hahu sumptuous. Okay, so Hahum was a caravan stop known to Assyrian merchants and was said to have been conquered by Sargon. Lulu probably refers to Lulubu, a mountain people northeast of Assyria. The two peoples occur together um, in a certain other work. Yeah. All right, so we have to look for the clues to understand this, but a person of that time would know the geography, would know all the different peoples, would know what they're famous for, and what their different relations of production are, and how this all, how this all comes together in this text into a critique of the kind of class society, the kind of grain state and early empire that Sargon represents. Why should I speak at length of what is on a tablet? Well, this is on a tablet right here, right? So that's funny. Um, and that's a wordplay on Sumerian dub. Uh, but if you read that as Akkadian, it's tupu. This meant inscription in genuine Sargonic inscriptions and translated Sumerian musar, lit- literally written name, but also simply tablet. Speak at length, literally make many words. In genuine Sargonic inscriptions meant narrate. Here the implication may be uh, to give multiple meanings to something. Why should I equivocate? Why am I doing wordplay here? Is what that could mean. May Anu himself not know how long I am king, how I took the upper and lower lands. May Anu himself not know. So here we have the suggestion that the Sky Father, the Supreme God, would be unhappy with Sargon if he knew the truth. Right, so this this is a common uh, monotheistic. We have beginnings of a monotheistic critique of class society that is saying there is a good absolute God who is a standard of value above you, earthly ruler, and He will judge you for all of the evil that you have done in perpetuating your class rule. All right, may Adad and King. Indeed, make abundant my provisions of food. Normally, kings provided regular food offerings to the gods, but here Sargon, whose need for comestibles is prodigious and whose cook is not always reliable, asks that the storm god and future kings provide him with regular food supplies. So, is also, I would suggest the storm god, so that, does that suggest, you know, battle, violence? This is how he is actually getting his resources. He's not making it legitimately. And there you go. That's the end of that. The Sargon, Lord of the Lies. So I think it really speaks for itself. Isn't it wonderful to see such an early, uh, you know, one of, earlier even than the Sargonic epics themselves, we have a parody of the Sargonic epics surviving. So you can see, again, just how unstable class rule was and how the grain state was. It kept on collapsing and people kept on going back to subsistence production, to community living, to sharing with each other, right? To having peaceful relations. And they kept on critiquing. And they could even use this new technology of writing to do that. 
and you can hide you can hide your power level as well uh, using using various tricks of writing and of speech. So you should do that too. Remember that the whole internet is a master, just a at least it's the the thing they've put the most effort into uh, since since maybe inventing writing in the first place, right? Inter- as a weapon of class struggle, as a weapon of counterinsurgency. Remember that that's what the internet is for. You got to hide your power level. There's serious, uh, you know, they they have capabilities that are going to be, that they didn't create by accident, you know. A lot of times the the idea, oh, we're becoming so polarized, you know, people are only just arguing and and there's no standard of absolute truth anymore. Well, you know, first of all, when you really understand what was happening before, you realize that people lived in a totally fake world, certainly all through the Cold War already, right? That wasn't reality. That wasn't truth back then. But yeah, to the extent that they can have everybody living in their own little echo chamber, uh, then they can easily pit people against each other, you know, and they're going to create all kinds of fake doubles, fake versions of things, in, in right? And uh, part of our task is seeing through to the true, seeing through to what is the real contradiction happening here, right? You have to discern what's actually happening materially, and then you can intervene. And the way that you intervene is by organizing IRL. Reach out to your neighbor, speak to someone, find who are the people that are really down and out around you, and speak to them, right? And if you can find someone, uh, you know, somebody who's... And if you two are really down and out, obviously, hopefully you are... You already know what to do, I think. Um, but if you're not one of those, uh, try and see what you can do to be a better class trader uh, while hiding your power level. It's a real thing. Like, I, I got to work on this, too, because there's this question of, like, what are you doing with your language? Right. And it's more important than what does your language say? That's another whole issue that I wanted to get into. You know, the uh, that's what so much Zen literature is about, is like... Um, it's the real it's centered around the realization that all kinds of discussions debates that you might have ultimately come down to just you know tropical birds with shiny golden feathers they have such beautiful amazing feathers in that ecosystem particularly the amazon which we now know was largely man made you know the people's there and they you know there are chronicles that refer to them and say, oh, they had so many cities in there. It was so complicated and they were managing all this forestry and creating this landscape that provided just all the nutrition anyone could want and so on. But very quickly, first of all, they were wiped out by disease. Uh, and probably a lot of Spanish and Portuguese conquistadores just went and killed them and then didn't tell anybody. So, you know... Today, the standard thing is, oh, that's some kind of myth, obviously. That's, you're, you're being, a, you know, idealistic or something. But no, it's, it's there. There's proof of that uh, that, we, that we know about. Again, read 1491 for more information on that. But so, you know, those birds, in a way, are just kind of like the greatest Zen masters because they dance around and hop back and forth on their little branches and swing one leg, one leg up, one leg up, and one wing goes up and swing the feathers around. And 
Uh, and that's all they're trying to do at the end of the day. So actually, they're they're great. You know, that's wonderful. Uh, but if you're a human being, you know, you got to be aware that the longer you go on talking, ultimately, that's all you're doing. Right. And so the different Zen masters are always watching for they do things like just shout or just smack each other. It's it's like a big uh, Tom and Jerry cartoon all the time. <laughs> like uh, they go in, they they'll maybe ask one kind of deep philosophical question, and the other one, uh, you know, tr- as is traditional, as you do as a Zen master, receives that deep philosophical question uh, and answers it by taking off his sandals and putting them on his head and doing a little dance. Uh, and then the other guy yells, ah, I don't, I wonder what it would be like. You know, there's, there's all kinds of sinographs actually for these yells like yee and ka and other things. And uh, those become sort of fetishized in Japan, by the way. Uh, and when Japanese people write their own kind of Zen style texts, they put those yells in there uh, and, st- and so on. So it becomes a nice little bird dance. Uh, in all different registers too, right? So, but it's it's supposed to be it's fetishized in Japan. It's this wonderful like, you know, you got to use the right l- graph for your uh, shouting, right? But of course, in in China at the actual time, it would have just been like, hey, fuck you, get the fuck out of here. I don't care about any of that uh, philosophical uh, stuff. And then the guy bashes him over the head, and then he walks out and says, I I see why they call you the greatest master. Uh, truly, you were the host and I was only the guest. So get out there and organize. Uh, put those muscles, get your consciousness lower in your body. I like that idea. You know, get it down into your into your hips, down into, right? And that's going to move and go dig a garden. You're going to, it's going to get you out. You're going to exercise, become fit. Because uh, you're going to need to fight in the class struggle, and you're going to need to produce. You know, relations of production need to be uh, revolutionized out there, right? And your neighbor needs to get connected with. You need to organize and connect. So anything that is not leading to that, uh, smash that idol, uh, yell "ye," and uh, punch him into the nose, and and put your sandals on your head and dance out. Because, again, brand consciousness is something that the class enemy is very, very accurate, actively using. They've studied so hard how to prey on someone's brand consciousness and their Jungian spirit enneagrams or whatever. Like, which spirit quadrant do you fall into? Uh, and that's how a lot of people decide, you know, like, which leftist influencer to support is what it what it usually is, you know. Even if it's it's disguised as like, what revolution do we want to be cheerleaders for, or or whatever, right? But one way to immunize yourself from that is to stay grounded in material praxis, right? So all those engineered kind of spectacles of you know the truckers, the garden, the the farmers, right? Uh, the baristas. The BLM, you know, all BLM, Antifa, the Antifa thugs, you know, uh, across the political spectrum, you know, the 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 psychological operations division of the U.S. Army who release literal taunting videos on YouTube about how we control everything. Uh, they want you to know that they're out there and that they're they're messing with you. 
but they they openly brag about full spectrum domination, which means that they have versions of every potential uh, tendency and arguably mostly the ones that are actually dangerous. They, they probably put the most effort into making fake versions of to divert you away from actual material praxis that's going to get somewhere, right? So it's a tough row to hoe, but let's, let's get hoeing. I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Do 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 do